This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views are guests of their own and not those of the exchange affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show talking with Savita Subramanian, who's the head of strategy at Bank of America Global Research. She does a lot of really interesting quantitative research across the markets and we get her view of what is going on. Professor, uh, you've been talking about some tremors. You had one on Monday, but the, the markets are resilient. They don't seem to want to be, be held down here. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, everyone was sort of freaking out on Monday. I came on, I was on CNBC, and I said, uh, you know, the, the, the movement's still up. Uh, the Delta virus is very... Um, transmissible we know that but uh it looked like this uh delta virus could accelerate the the final wave that uh, achieves herd immunity in the united states um which uh would be favorable uh to uh to get there i mean it would be better to get there by vaccination but if this is the way that it's done then this is the way that it's done um and um now, what you know, we have the Fed meeting next week. Uh, obviously, Delta will be part of the discussion, but I think there'll be a lot of voices, especially with the stock market at all-time highs today, um, and more talk about you know, do we need to do the purchases and all that. Uh, I mean, I think that that because of the Delta variant, Powell could probably hold today. There will be a mention in the statement. Maybe about you know thinking about coming out towards tapering, but he could probably hold the center. But this would be the last time. Um, you know, the August uh, meeting uh, in Jackson Hole will be when the announcement is, and we'll start moving against it. In the meantime, I still expect the inflation news to be bad. Um, the CRB index, by the way, is at an all-time high today. So all this idea about oh, all these commodities are coming down. Selected ones are coming down, but and, and, and CRB is one third oil, and oil certainly crashed on Monday with the uh, Delta plus the uh, OPEC, uh, you know, news. But then it, it came back, and the other commodities are coming back. On the stock market, blowout earnings, just uh, as we have been saying for months and months and months, and continues. Uh, earnings are driving this market, uh, and if the yield stays at 128 as it is now on the 10-year, uh, there's nothing in the way of this bull market uh, to continue. Let me bring in Savita for a quick comment just to get uh, her quick reaction. Savita, what, when, when you look at from your perspective at, at B of A Research, are, what's your worldview top-down? Uh, how are you thinking about the second half of the year? Yeah, no, it's it's great to be here, and especially with uh, with Dr. Siegel, it's just a real honor. Um, so here's our view. I think, I think um, you know everything that that Professor Siegel said is, is correct. I mean, we're we're seeing the commodities market tell us that inflation is not some fleeting uh, fleeting concern. We're seeing um, you know kind of. The Delta variant is providing some consternation around the cyclical recovery, but I, I do think that where we are right now is a, is a time to be focused in on cyclical stocks, stocks that are tethered to an economic recovery that is likely to, you know, maybe not be as smooth as we were anticipating, but um, is likely to continue from here. And then, you know, to, to your point about the Fed meeting, I, I think we do need to brace ourselves for some taper talk, or at least, you know, talking about talking about tapering. And that is something that I think could cause a bit of volatility in the market over the months to come. So while we're bullish on stocks and on cyclicals in particular, I do think that we're setting ourselves up for a little bit more volatility around the idea that, you know, this, this sort of the, the number one asset buyer, the Fed, 
maybe starting to reduce, um, you know, their liquidity infusions into the market. So that's something that I would be um, kind of watching for in, in the in the weeks to come. Um, you know, our view is value over growth, cyclicals over defensives. Small caps could benefit from an economic recovery more than large caps. We're super bullish on earnings, but I think the areas you want to avoid are defensives and the, the sort of secular growth stocks that have led the market for the last, uh, you know, 10 plus years. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with I agree with a lot of what Sweet is saying. Um, uh, there may be a little bit more taper talk in the statement than maybe the market's anticipating, and then we will get another what I call taper tremor. Uh, not tantrum, yep. but tremor. Um, but uh, 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 and I do think those those reopening stocks. I mean, we we still had we're still having a run of growth. I mean, I, I, you know, I plot uh, Russell value versus Russell growth, and of course we had that whole surge. But that surge of value versus growth um, has retraced sixty to seventy percent. Now, we're not back to the highs of growth versus value, but we certainly, you know, have had a resurgence. And, of course, it depends on what area that you're you're in, the super growth versus, you know, the, the, the Kathy Wood type stocks versus the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the more uh, traditional growth versus the reopening trade. So there's different categories here. And um, but I definitely agree with the thrust of what you're saying. And I definitely uh, agree, especially with yields so low that uh, people will be taking a look at where am I going to get inflation protection and yield. Uh, and that would yes, argue absolutely. for those uh, reopening stocks basically being the best of that category. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, an interesting point because I think the best way to get inflation protected dividends is, or inflation protected yield is through dividends, which where earnings yeah. are nominal. So um, yeah, so I think the S and P still looks like a, a you know a good place to get that that inflation protected growth. It's a great point. Yeah, so I think that uh, yeah, I think we're pretty much in in in, uh, in sync. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've, I've read some of your publications. I know that Jeremy will speak to them, but uh, you know they're very well thought of and very very well researched, and I think it really corresponds to uh, pretty much uh, what we've been uh, uh, looking at. O- outside of that, we're not getting. Of course, inflation news for another three weeks. We have the Fed. Yes, there may be a little bit more talk, a little more tremor. Um, but, the, you know, the the 10-year, uh, it's such a hedge against short-term volatility. Look what happened on on Monday when, the you know, the Dow was down 8,900, Treasuries were up two, three points, and people want to hold it. Um, and um, even though it's going to deteriorate in real value, uh over time um uh we'll see we're going to get toward the end of the month i think it's next is it going to be next week toward the end the gdp number advance for the second quarter will come out the first reading and i think we get the pce uh deflator again those are based on uh, on, on indicators of which we saw the ppi and the cpi that came out uh earlier um but uh, again, uh, I think that inflation is much hotter and more permanent than uh, Chairman Powell has admitted. That's going to be a big part of the discussion. Uh, certainly, they don't need to do the um, uh, mortgage-backed securities in the in this uh, red-hot uh, housing market uh, that uh, that we see. Thanks for joining us for some some early commentary to start the show. So, Savita, interesting to hear uh, your early thoughts. Let me just reintroduce who we talked to, Savita Subramanian, head of U.S. equity and quantitative strategy at B of A Global Research, also head of environmental, social, and governance research there as well. Uh, so on your top line view, thinking on the cyclicals, you know, the small caps had some pullback. You know, you had sort of small caps leading early to start. As you think about that factor rotation of what's driving these pulls, tugs and pulls of, of the markets, how do you think about that value yeah. in small cap, you know, factor going forward? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting environment that we're in right now. And I think, you know, what we've seen over the last month or so is, you know, a, a pretty big reversal. I mean, as Professor Siegel pointed out, we've seen almost a, you know, 
70% give back of value. Um, uh, you know, small caps have, have retraced pretty aggressively. And I think there is just a huge amount of skepticism around the idea that we could finally be in a market environment where something does well besides large mega cap tech stocks. So I think that's what the market is digesting right now is that maybe we are setting ourselves up for something different. A couple of things come come to mind that are comforting to me when I think about, you know, you know where we are in this in this market. Um so first of all, what, you know, what we found is that during these long value cycles you generally see a few growth head fakes. And I think that that's what we saw over the last month or so, was an environment where we've had value mostly outperform. Then we had this head fake where value really took it on the chin and growth stocks resumed leadership. And I think that has everybody saying, okay, well, we're back to the growth type of market. We want to just you know, go back to what's worked for the last 10 years. And I would say... You know, even though that might feel comfortable to continue to buy large cap tech and the companies that have made you money over the last you know, you know decade or more, um, we're we're actually due for leadership in a very different cohort. So I would stick with cyclical GDP sensitive, inflation sensitive companies in the S and P 500 and in the in the Russell 2000. Now. This is where it gets interesting. I mean, we've been in a market environment where the S&P 500 has crushed it for a decade. But this market environment has been one in which GDP has really failed to strongly recover. We haven't really seen a full-blown economic cycle or a CapEx cycle. And we haven't really seen a market environment where inflation has come back um, in a meaningful way. So our contention is, why... Why stick with the S&P 500 in the years to come? There are probably better places to get that inflation beta, to get that, you know, kind of GDP sensitivity than, um, than the S&P 500. So our view is small caps are much more tethered to economic recoveries. They're much more tethered to capex cycles. This is what we're finding in our quant work as well as looking back over history. Um, that's where we would be focused in this environment. And, you know, I think unless the Delta variant proves to be really uh, much more kind of economically punitive than, than we're expecting, we would continue to stick with small caps and, and cyclicals and value. It's interesting in terms of the narratives that drive the market at any given time. And, and sort of early in this in this year, one of the questions you would see people comment a lot is how much of the, the growth sell-off was sort of the 10-year, a duration trade, rates heading higher, tied into some of this inflation story. Was it, in your view, that growth was getting hit from that? Or is it was it just that the, the that cyclical inflation trade was just causing the money rotation and it had nothing to do with, with rates heading higher and these these sort of bond, the, the growth stocks being a bond proxy? You know, it's a really good question. And I, I guess my response would be it was a little bit of each. So, I mean, if you look at, at, at just from a math perspective or from a kind of financial theory perspective, your longer duration growth stocks, like the companies where you're investing today in great growth way out in the future, those companies are going to get hit a little bit harder by um, an increase in the discount rate. So that's that's where I think growth becomes a little less attractive. And here I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, kind of um, mega cap tech companies that pay a big dividend, but I'm talking more about, you know, these buy the dream companies um you know, where you get no dividends or no cash flows today, but lots of growth way out in the future. And I think those companies took a hit just from the, you know, the discounted cash flow uh, analysis basis. So, you know, remember back to our finance classes, um, if you have a rise in the discount rate, that's going to hurt your long duration stocks and bonds more than your short duration stocks and bonds. So that was one factor. But then I think, you know, the other factor was, Look, we've had, you know, 2020 was a year of unprecedented economic, um, you know, pain. And and we saw a a full-fledged coordinated global shutdown. This is something we have never experienced before. And that pushed investors into secular growth, into tech, into stay-at-home beneficiaries, and into defensive, like, you know, food stocks. So here we were in an environment where everything just ground to a halt. And positioning just swung 
full tilt towards uh, defensives and and secular growth and tech. Then all of a sudden we got this vaccine. We got you know inklings of a of a strong recovery. We got the idea that we were going to from zero to a hundred on an economic um, reopening. You know we were going to start flying again, start driving again. Oil prices started to to move higher, and I think that pushed investors out of these really crowded stay-at-home growth, uh, secular growth beneficiaries into some of the, um, you know, the reopened beneficiaries. So I think a, uh, it was a, it was partly, it was a combination of the idea that the economy went from zero to a hundred. Um, we had some in, a pickup in inflation from demand, a demand recovery. But then on top of that, you just have the math that tells you in an environment where rates and the discount rate are rising, whether it's real rates or nominal rates, that's going to make your longer duration growth stocks less attractive on the margin. So it all kind of came together in this um, in this very coordinated um, kind of you know push to drive the outperformance of, of value and, and cyclicals and small caps. Now here we are today. We've seen a, a bit of a reversal in that in that trade, but I guess what we want to think about is. Has anything really changed? So are we continuing to see the economy recover? Are we going to continue to see people emerge from their homes, you know, start driving again, start flying again, traveling for work? Um, You know, where are we in that economic recovery? And as long as we're not moving back to a 2020 type of environment, I think you want to stick with that that cyclical uh, bias. In in terms of what, you know, when we've seen some of the volatility, you know, you've seen basically the things that have worked um, sell off. I mean, is that what you see in, in sort of like on, on like a Monday this week? You saw that sort of cyclical trade fall off. And is it just people reducing leverage and, and, and think bringing, bringing back the winners when we see a little bit of volatility come back? Yeah, I think that's potentially it. It's just sort of, you know, kind of if you if you if we're seeing signs that the economy isn't on a, on firm footing, you're going to want to buy, uh, you know, defensive. You're going to want to buy the companies that don't need an economic recovery to outperform. I will tell you this, though, what I find really interesting from, you know, looking at all of the data that we, we capture, um, I think what's interesting is that we're still not in an environment where, value stocks and cyclicals are really crowded and overweight in the average fund. So what's really, um, I think to me, the the biggest kind of conundrum about this market is that, you know, between last year and this year, institutional money managers haven't really changed their stripes all that much. They've stuck with, uh, you know, a, 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 a tilt towards growth and away from value Maybe they've closed their underweights in, in some of these areas like financials or energy, but they're nowhere near crowded and overweight energy and financials. In fact, they're still underweight, these areas of the market. So, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily think it was all about, you know, positioning and, and selling your value winners and moving back into the neglected growth area. In fact, I think that growth is still relatively crowded. I mean, if you look at the average mutual fund, the average mutual fund has about a 50% overweight in TMT or, you know, tech, media, and telecom mm-hmm. stocks, communication services. And there's still about a 10% underweight uh, financials and energy. So this is an environment where I think folks are just really reticent to move into parts of the market that haven't worked for the bulk of their careers. And I think what what's really, you know, what we need to remind ourselves of is the average money manager today, the average institutional money manager is about 45 years old. So he or she hasn't really seen a market environment where value and inflation and cyclicals and, you know, the, you know, kind of the, the, um, energy, like the, the economically sensitive areas of the market have had a systematic and prolonged period of outperformance. And and I think that's really important is to remember that behavioral aspect of the average institutional money manager. And I think it's really hard from a risk perspective to move into a part of the market that hasn't really made you any money for your entire career. So, so I think that's another factor to keep in mind is just from a behavioralistic or a psychological basis, 
you know, the average professional money manager today is used to an environment where price momentum has been the best factor for picking stocks. All you've had to do is buy what's working, and that's what's made you money. Um, you know, growth has outperformed value, and tech has crushed it for many, many, many years. And the idea that that we could move into a different type of market leadership, I think, is really hard to to grasp if, if you've been in such a one-dimensional um, type of a type of uh, 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 market atmosphere. So, so yeah. I think that the pain trade to me is still value cyclicals, you know, inflation, etc. Just a, you know, all the stuff that we're not really used to as professional money managers. We're talking with Savita Subramanian, who is the head of quant research at B of A Global Research. But Savita, I'm wondering on you know one of your other titles as head of ESG research, uh, tying into one of the sectors you talked about that is sort of a, a, a quote-unquote value sector. I think in one of your pieces on, on relative valuation, it showed it had sort of the highest potential upside. Are ESG investors contributing to sort of the energy underweights and... Uh, values or how do you do you do square that uh, between your ESG lens and your your quant lens how do you think about that yeah it's, a, it's an interesting position to be in because um, you know I'm bullish on on ESG I think that environmental social and governance investing is not going away um, but on the flip side I think that energy is one of the most attractive sectors in the market so how do we how do you how can you be bullish on a quote-unquote brown sector if uh, you know, if I think that ESG is is a is still a very strong um, a strong theme, well, you know, I think what's happening right now is we're moving from an environment where ESG focused investors just basically purged their portfolios of of uh, energy of big emitters. Um, you know, energy and utilities are now the biggest underweights in the average ESG fund. But today, what's interesting is we're starting to see kind of what I would call ESG 2.0 or sort of a learning curve in terms of what is actually sustainable, you know, how do we get to net zero and what's the role of traditional commodities along the way to net zero? So, you know, I think what's interesting is that we're now sitting at a point where energy is super cheap, tech and, you know, green green sectors like EV and, um, you know, kind of these these poster poster stocks for ESG are pretty expensive. And we're now grappling with the question, well, how green is tech and, you know, these asset-like companies and how brown is energy? And I think, you know, here we are today and we're looking a little bit more closely at technology companies. And what we're realizing is that while internet and catalog retailers may look great from a direct emissions profile because they don't have actual storefronts, um, when you look at, at these companies from an indirect emissions profile, at their supply chain emissions and they're, you know, they're kind of moving stuff around and flying things here and there and packaging everything in boxes, their indirect emissions actually look pretty, pretty, uh, pretty negative. And in fact, you know, Internet and, and direct catalog retail has a higher indirect emissions profile than your traditional brick-and-mortar retailers. So there are some surprises that we're starting to unearth in the data that are saying, okay, these green stocks might not be as green as we thought they were. And then, oh, by the way, energy companies have gotten the memo. They realize they need to think about how they want to position themselves on the path to uh, you know, net, net zero. Um, most of these companies have been pretty aggressive about setting targets, about thinking about managing their emissions profile. Obviously, they, they can't wipe it out uh, overnight. But, um, but I think that, you know, we're in the process of seeing brown sectors become more green and realizing that green sectors aren't necessarily as green as they seem. Um, so that's why I think that energy plays a really interesting role in the ESG investors portfolio. And, you know, perhaps it's one of those situations where we need to think about energy from the perspective of, okay, here's where they sit today, but what are they going to look like in 10 years? It's, you know, it's kind of like that Wayne, Wayne Gretzky quote. You don't want to, you, you always want to be um, skating to where, to where the puck is moving to. And I think that energy is moving to a better place over time. And that's, that's mm. what we really need to think about as, as ESG investors. And now, is that ESG investor base? You know, when I've talked with a, a lot of people in the space, they, they tend to say, 
you know, like 80% of the client demand is coming out of Europe, that Europe has been you know, sort of pushing the envelope much further than U.S. sort of pensions, institutions, and, and investors. Do you yep. see some of that dynamic changing? Is your client base, would you say that sort of typical 80% European and, and a little bit less in the U.S., but the U.S. Is, is, is skating to Europe? Is that where it's heading? Yeah, you know, I think it is. And, and I think that's been in place for, for a while now. I mean, in the U.S., we've seen... Um, you know, asset flows move into ESG. Um, this is one of the, the the kind of fastest growing areas from a ETF perspective into sustainable ETF. So, so we are seeing a, a pretty um, pretty demonstrable um, shift in terms of investor preference in the U.S. And you know, whether this is driven by millennials or Gen Z or you know, that's that's one of the narratives around ESG. I don't think it's all about just this younger demographic prefers. Um, impact investing. I think there's more to it than that. I think what what investors across the globe are realizing is that sustainably focused companies actually outperform over time. And this is what we've spent a lot of our, our time trying to trying to prove to investors is that we've actually seen a very strong linkage between companies focused on, you know, kind of safe, stable, happy workforces lowering their environmental impact through waste, better waste management and, and emissions management. Companies focused on paying their, their C-suite, um, you know, in, in, uh, in line with shareholder incentives. Companies that are focused on the SENG um, from a kind of a daily perspective actually experience higher return on equity, lower earnings volatility, even lower bankruptcy risk than companies that aren't necessarily paying attention to these longer-term themes. So I, I don't think that ESG is, you know, purely a, within the European purview and the U.S. Is, is just sort of, you know, playing along with it. I think that what we're, what we're starting to realize as a, as a global investment force is that a lot of these factors that go into ESG considerations are actually additive from a financial risk reward perspective. So that I think is is really playing a role in massive adoption of ESG. I think though in the US it will never look like Europe. And this is, you know, this is my view is that we we have a different political setup, we have a different investor makeup. We have, um, you know, kind of more aggressive activism. So I think in the U.S., ESG will always be motivated by kind of the financial rewards that we've seen, um, the linkage between good companies and good stocks. I think that will be the impetus for ESG investing, not necessarily more of a political driver. Um, so, you know, one thing I just wanted to mention to you, which I thought was fascinating, is that ESG in the U.S., has been really driven by investor preference and not by the political backdrop. So we've had, you know, Obama in the White House, then we had Trump, now we have Biden. And ESG inflows have been steady and, and accelerating throughout those three very different administrations. So I think what's, what's different about the U.S. is that this is really being driven by corporations and shareholders rather than politics, which I find fascinating and, you know, kind of heartening at, a, at, a, at some level. And you've applied like your typical quantitative frameworks to looking through ESG about a, a, a sort of deep ESG report that I'm, I'm looking at that sort of talks through, you know, like year to date, a lot of the indices have outperformed, but uh, energy is outperformed. Yeah. So it's, you know, a lot of the commentary yeah. in the long term is that, hey, it's just energy underweights. But uh, you're sort of looking at a lot of interesting things. Any, any commentaries on the sort of factor worldview that you guys are sharing there? Yeah, I think what's been interesting is, yeah, to your point, I mean, we've had an environment where energy has been the number one performing sector in the S&P 500 year to date, but ESG funds have also produced alpha. So what gives? And I, I think what, what we're seeing is that, you know, even on a sector neutral basis, um, you know, the, the quote unquote good stocks within uh, within uh, sectors are outperforming the quote unquote bad stocks. So and, you know, how we determine that is that's where it gets really interesting and nuanced. But the companies that are focused on, you know, kind of managing their environmental, social and governance risks appear to be adding alpha within sectors as well as across the market. Um, you know, I think what's also been interesting about like sort of experiencing um, 
kind of this post-COVID market environment um, is that we've found that investors are actually paying more attention to social factors. Mm. So I think what COVID did, you know, in 2020, last year, um, we found that, you know, companies with, with good S factors, so good, good um, you know, employee uh, policies with safe, stable, loyal workforces with um, with with strong policies around healthcare and leave. All of these, you know, kind of quote unquote softer uh, social factors were actually some of the strongest performers within sectors um, during that very quick bear market of uh, of 2020. So it's interesting to see that you know possibly COVID and this this global pandemic. Um, really underscored the importance of this the S in ESG, which I think has been the least understood of um, of you know the 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 three letters. So we all get that environmental risks can be costly. You know, dumping oil in the ocean is a bad thing to do. We all get that you know governance and mismanagement at the top can lead to really costly missteps. But I think the social factors were less understood, and I think. You know, what was interesting about um, analyzing the market throughout COVID was seeing that these were some of the factors that actually drove a lot more differentiation between stocks than E or uh, environmental or governance factors. That would be really interesting to drone to a little bit more. We're going to have you for the rest of the program. We're talking with Savita Subramanian when you're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, we're just talking about all the factors that Savita covers and how she's thinking about the markets going to the second half of the year. Uh, Savita, we, 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 we focus a lot on the value and cyclical trade. You know, in terms of some of the things I, I sort of follow, quality stocks were sort of one of the interesting places. You know, it's been like this high, what I'd call like the first half, you had this high beta junk rally going on and sort of quality was a factor that was under a, a lot of pressure. You also published a little bit on quality um, maybe last month. Any any commentary on what's happening in quality stocks and and how you think about that sort of over the long run? Yeah. So it's we're at a really we're we're at a point today that looks very different from where we were at the beginning of the year. Um, so so we you know from from the the advent of the the vaccine to Today, we've generally seen, um, you know, kind of what what folks call these, you know, junk rallies or dash to trash or, you know, low quality driven markets where, you know, generally and that's generally what you see coming off of a um, off of a recession is that all the stocks that were about to go bankrupt generally post the strongest gains in the early stages of a recovery. So here we are today where, you know, we've, we've come, we've come a long way from where we were in, in November of last year. Now what do you buy? And I think what's really interesting is that given how strongly, um, a lot of these lower quality, riskier stocks, um, you know, performed over the last, uh, couple of quarters, we're now at a point where, where some of the low, the higher quality companies actually look inexpensive. And this is very different from where we were last year when folks had piled into quality and quality was trading at a very high price tag. Today, a lot of these high quality stocks are actually pretty inexpensive. So our advice to investors is, okay, stick with a value bias. You know, the world is getting better rather than worse, but go for the higher quality companies, go for the companies that are actually generating free cash flow, go for the companies that are, you know, kind of you're, you're getting um, a little bit more earnings visibility from them um, rather than just buying the most distressed stocks in the market environment. So really what this means is, okay, maybe you don't necessarily want to buy the, you know, the super, um, the super high beta, uh, you know, kind of higher earnings risk companies in the S&P 500 that have actually done really well already. But you want to look for companies with solid balance sheets, with more, um, you know, stable earnings, but still have some tether to an economic recovery. And this actually leads us to, to a couple of sectors. One is financial. Financial companies to us look really interesting from a quality and a value perspective, because what you can argue is financial companies today are sitting on, you know, the healthiest balance sheets we've seen in a very, very long time. And thanks to, 
you know, in part to regulation where companies within the financial sector were really not allowed to take on as much risk as they would have during a normal bull market. So, you know, financial companies are unlevered. Um, They're paying pretty healthy dividends. Their dividend payout ratio is still low enough that one could argue they have the ability to increase that dividend over time and, and keep up with inflationary pressures, which, you know, as we discussed with, with Professor Siegel, is a really important part of the investment question today is, you know, inflation-protected yield. Um, so I, I think that that's one sector that, to me, kind of checks all the boxes. It's still relatively inexpensive because folks think that rates are going to stay low forever, but it's also a high-quality sector with a lot more earnings visibility than it used to have, you know, in, in, in the 2000s when it was, you know, a much more levered, um, you know, kind of much more high-beta area of the market. One anecdote for you there. I mean, one of the, there's a lot of these, to your point on sort of buying dividend stocks and, and inflation hedges, some of the quality dividend growth stocks we track and a number of different ETFs that go there usually could be in the core blend category from like a Morningstar style box, but but recently have drifted mm-hmm. over to the value style box. Sort of, I think it speaks to a little bit on, on your point on, on the valuations getting getting depressed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting to look at the big changes that we've seen in what is a cheap stock today versus, you know, what was it a year ago? And, um, you know, I think what's, what's also really interesting is if you, so, so what, what to me, what makes me think that value is going to continue to work is if you just look at all the stocks in, in the market that are, you know, kind of lower PE or, or higher free cash flow yielders, just, you know, any, any valuation measure you pick. What we're finding is that the companies that are trading at lower price tags are actually offering higher growth over the next couple of years than the so-called, you know, more expensive growth stocks. So I think we're at a really interesting point in the market where you can buy higher growth, higher quality companies at a cheaper price than, um, you know, than, than some of the riskier lower growth companies, which is really just a tremendous opportunity that doesn't come up very often, um, you know, when you, when you look at, at, um, at kind of what you get when you pay for, uh, for stocks. So, so today to me is just a really interesting time to be an investor. There's a lot of really interesting opportunities that, uh, that normally don't come about. But I think that the fact that we've been in such a volatile market environment with such a speedy sell-off and then such a speedy recovery has left us with a lot of really interesting opportunities. When you you do a lot of quantitative research, and instead of like me driving the the area there of of, of factors that you do and, and some of the screens that you focus on, is there anything of all the? I mean, you run a, a lot of different quant screens. Is there anything that you think is <laughs> is a, a favorite child there within with that universe of what 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 all the different quant screens that you all run? You know, I do. I have my favorite and um, my good. baby, as it were. But um, yeah, so we track, you know, over 70 different ways to pick stocks. And, and it's always interesting because, you know, there's there's always a bull market in, in some factor. You can always make money in some factor, uh, you know, on a relative and an absolute basis. What I found to be the sort of the steady eddy uh, strategy that I recommend to my parents, to my friends, not that any of them listen to me, um, is is just a really simple screen that we can all do at home, um, you know, with using, you know, a finance uh, finance website. But basically, if you take the the market, if you take the universe of stocks and you screen by dividend yield, and then instead of buying the highest dividend yielders, you buy what I call quintile two, the second highest tranche of dividend yielders. So these are companies that pay a yield anywhere between, let's call it right now, it would be between, let's say like two and two and 4% dividend yield. And if you, if you started out doing that, you know, at the beginning of uh, the beginning of our data history. So back in the the late seventies, let's say you just employed that strategy where every quarter, all you did was you bought quintile two by dividend yield. So kind of medium, but not super high dividend yield. Uh, and you just kept doing that every quarter, super boring, not the most exciting strategy, um, you would have outperformed the market and every other quintile by dividend yield 
um, by a pretty significant margin, and your probability of losing money would have been the lowest of all five quintiles. And what I think is even more interesting is that you would have made more money on a total return basis by employing that strategy than you would have by buying the high-flying growth companies, the companies that don't pay a dividend because they're you know, so great that they're plowing back all their earnings into their own business model. So, you know, I think what's, what's really fascinating about this exercise is, first of all, you realize the importance of income or yield in a total return strategy. And we all know the stats that, you know, almost half of your returns in the S&P on a total return basis come from your dividends. But I think what's also interesting to see is that companies that pay the highest dividends are oftentimes the most toxic areas of the market. These are companies where dividends have increased because prices have fallen, you know, because there's a problem with the stock and they're probably going to have to cut their dividend. So in a way, just screening on high but not super high dividends gives you a bunch of companies that pay a solid return on a total return basis. They have some capital discipline, so they pay some of their earnings out as a fixed lump of cash to you, the investor. So they're not going to go crazy in terms of CapEx or, or acquisitions. They have some discipline. They have some calls on their capital that keep them a little bit more um, sober than other companies. Um, and then you just clip this coupon and also get a little bit of that growth from the, the uh, you know, the nominal and the, the earnings portion of, of the, the profile. And it, to me, that's just kind of all it all it is, is in equities is, is looking for those steady eddies, not the exciting story stocks that everybody's talking about at cocktail parties, but companies that are that are really just sort of, you know, chugging along, paying out a safe, stable dividend, not, not doing anything crazy in terms of, um, you know, other calls on their cash. And uh, and that's that's really in our in our back test and our in our um, quant work, what we found to be one of the most stable strategies that works in in most market environments um you know over every five-year time horizon that we've looked at you've made money rather than lost money so it's just i think it's one of those those um boring but uh but predictable uh ways to invest that i that i think is uh is, is pretty prudent that's excellent. I, it's funny as I have that report on my screen. I was about to ask about that, and I didn't know that's where you were going to go. So I, I guess we had we were connected there. We're, we're talking with Savita Subramanian, who's the head of quant research at B of A Global Research. Savita, in that report, you sort of talk uh, on like the high dividend yield, like the highest decile, and how sort of different the experience is. Um, is that sort of like the definition of those value traps that that sort of you know, over over 15, 20, actually, I guess it's uh, 35 years you looked at it, sort of doesn't go anywhere over mm-hmm. 30 years. Yeah, yeah. So those are either, I mean, there are two types of stocks. So the highest dividend yielding companies are either traps. These are companies where their prices are falling, so their dividends look super attractive, but there's something broken. So they're basically kind of falling knives. Um, and and they're probably going to cut that dividend. That's what That's what their price action is telling you. Or they're just, you know, ex-growth um, companies that pay all of their earnings out as a high dividend. And, and you know, what you're going to get is in a, in a bull market with a, you know, earnings recovery, defensive cash cow companies generally lag. So that's not necessarily the place you want to be. And then in a market environment where you're seeing, um, you know, risks and, and like, like what we saw last year in March, you know, bear markets or, or volatile markets, um, the dividend traps generally uh, are not a great place to be. I mean, they they don't do well in any type of market environment. So, so our view is okay. Don't don't try to clip the highest coupon. Just try to clip a coupon that's sustainable and um, and is likely to increase rather than decrease over time. Um, one of the the pieces that I I saw. You know, in, in, in going into the, you always hear the sell in May go away, sort of summertime blues, whatever. Uh, you know, is there is there places we we, we sort of, we, we started the show with a little uh, an optimistic outlook. But if, if people were, were trending yeah. to worrying about the market or or do, or do you have some worries about where where the summertime might be and, and, and how you think about finding your, your short candidates? I do. I do worry a, a little bit about volatility. And, and, you know, one of the reasons is that. Um, you know, typically in a in a normal year, you see three five percent 
pullbacks and we haven't had any. So I think that's one reason for a bit of consternation on my part. And then, you know, not with, on top of that, we have, we're at a point where we're going to hear from the Fed. We are seeing inflation data, um, you know, not necessarily subside. Um, we're starting to talk about potential tax hikes, both corporate and individual, as, as a way to pay back all this fiscal stimulus that we've received. So I think that the headlines are, are potentially getting more negative. Um, we're also entering this seasonally weak period. August is one of the weakest months uh, on a, in a typical year. Not that I put a lot of stock into seasonal trends because I think, you know, there's no fundamental reason this should work. But um, but just in case you're worried about the August, uh, August uh, um, slowdown, I think there are places that you can think about reducing exposure or even shorting. And those would be, um, you know, really crowded areas of the market where investors have, especially institutional investors and hedge funds have increased their allocations and and short interest is de minimis. Um, Those are areas of the market that could be under pressure if we do see hedge funds reduce their overall uh, uh, equity exposure. And um, and that's generally what we've seen in August is that crowded stocks, especially by hedge funds and long onlys, tend to underperform. Um, and then on top of that, I think that there are areas of the market where you know, you're overpaying for perceived growth. So when you look at the the relative growth profiles of of some of these sectors, like even within communication services and TMT. Um, I think that in, in some of these these areas, we're overpaying for the actual growth that we're going to get over the next couple of years. So, you know, the way I would screen for short ideas or for, um, you know, underperform ideas would be spots in the market, stocks or sectors where you're seeing high multiples, um, significant crowding by institutional and individual and, and hedge fund investors. And, and by our lights right now, that's still tech media, telecom, the, the communication services sector. And then I would look for companies where their growth profiles are actually lagging the market. And the market right now is slated to grow by 30, over 30% this year. And, you know, we're, we're forecasting something close to 10% next year. So we've got great growth for the overall market. You don't need to overpay for growth right now. You can find cheaper growth in, in pockets of the market that are less expensive and, uh, and less crowded. That would be our, our advice to investors. Talking about crowding, it's sort of hard not to bring up the meme stocks, right, in terms of the short interest. Any commentary about what you see going on in, in these stocks with short interest and how that as a factor is something that you all look at? We do look at short interest, and I think where the action has been from a short interest perspective has been primarily focused within smaller companies. So this isn't necessarily an issue that's playing out in in the S&P 500. But I guess I do think about this sort of the changing market microstructure as posing risk to larger companies from one specific angle. And, And this is something we've been writing about that I don't think gets enough attention, which is the idea that the S&P 500 actually has potentially more liquidity risk than it has had in the past. And the reason I say that is that if you look at, you know, big money investors like pension funds, insurance companies, they're basically overweight this barbell strategy. They've, they've moved from active, active uh, equity funds to passive S&P index funds, which makes sense. I mean, index funds are, are, you know, a great way to get exposure to the market at, the, at a low price. Um, but then they've also legged into private equity, illiquid investments. Um, so, you know, when you look at, at the average allocation of a pension fund to illiquid investments, they've basically tripled their exposure over the last 10 years. So I think meme stocks are less of a risk than the idea that everyone, um, pension funds, um, you know, uh, sovereign wealth funds, uh, individual investors have basically moved into either illiquid private equity or real estate or, or kind of, um, you know, non-equity high growth areas of the market, or they've replaced their equity exposure with S&P index funds. So what I worry about is if there's anything that happens that causes any sort of 
um, you know, risk in, in the private equity or illiquid areas of the market, namely interest rates rising or, you know, credit spreads rising or any sort of increase in the cost of capital, that could force investors to sell the liquid areas of their portfolios to meet their, their you know, capital requirements. And the most liquid areas of the average investor's portfolio is an SP index fund. So that's where I worry about this, this sort of the changing microstructure and the changing investor preference and just the, the ease of buying and selling and, you know, social media and, and tracking and, and forcing liquidations within hedge funds. I think that the, the ultimate casualty could actually be, um, you know, forced selling of S&P index funds. And I think this is something that doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention, but is, is potentially a bigger risk for large cap U.S. equities than what we're used to um, in a in a normal sell off. That that is interesting to to track, uh, and and I could see I could see your your case there. Um, we're in our final like minute minute and a half. Any sort of closing thoughts as you think about the world here? Things that you want to draw people attention? How they can stay in touch with your research? Any other final closing thoughts? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I mean, it's been great to talk about all of our views. I think, you know, just keep it simple is our advice. And like I said, quintile two by dividend yield is one of my favorite strategies. Um, I think we need to think about what, what's happening in the world and things are getting better rather than worse. So stick with GDP sensitive cyclical areas of the market. And, um, you know, uh, I'd love to come back again and revisit all of these ideas in a year and see where we are. No, this has been, you know, we, we covered uh, some of your greatest hits. I, I, this has really been a, been a fun conversation. I appreciate you spending so much time with us reviewing all of the, all of the great research. Thanks so much for, for joining us, Savita. Oh, likewise. Thank you. We've been talking with Savita Subramanian, Head of Quantitative Research at B of A Global Research. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, for, for helping keep our show running. Uh, and our, our sound engineer today, Chris Tukes, who's been on the board. Thank you, Chris. Have a great summer weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.